I want to start off this podcast by saying every time you hear this, it means fuck you. Hey everyone, this is Harrison Smith back with another episode of Cinema, the podcast. This is not a movie review show. This is about how cynicism affects filmmaking and our entertainment, how we end up becoming so cynical we don't understand the difference between so bad it's good and just plain bad. Jaws the Revenge is the shining example of cinema. And in this episode, we're going to look at why. I'm going to support what I say. Well, wait a minute. You said this isn't a film review. Jaws the Revenge is not a movie. It's a cynical piece of product. There was nothing intended to entertain about Jaws the Revenge. So how does something like this get made? I mean, that's the biggest thing. You, you have filmmakers out there that are working their butts off and, and they're putting their own money into their projects. And some of these projects never see the light of day. You had to have gone to the movies and sat through a movie and just asked afterwards, how the hell did that get made? And, and not because it's out of sour grapes or you're a hater or any of those things. It's just genuinely bad. And in this case, Jaws the Revenge sucks. There is nothing entertaining about this film except one small piece, which I will get to later. There is one good thing about Jaws the Revenge. I remember way back in 1986, somewhere there, uh, an ad actually went out into the trades. I believe it might have been Variety. Quietly, a Jaws 4 was going into production. Now, you have to go back a little bit. Uh, Jaws 2 was a big success. It did not make the same amount of money as Jaws, but it went on for a while to be the highest grossing sequel ever made. And although money doesn't mean quality, Jaws 2 was not a cynical film. We'll have a separate podcast on that. But then you got Jaws 3D. And I said in my previous podcast that I don't count Jaws 3D as cinema. Jaws 3D is a bad movie. It's like the creature walks among us with a shark. It's just that bad. And it was made by people that really wanted to make a good movie, but it just wasn't in the cards. And I'll have a separate podcast about Jaws 3D to support my statement there. But a trade ad went out announcing that there would be a Jaws 4. Now, this came right from Universal and the head of Universal, Sid Sheinberg. Now, Sheinberg chaired over Universal Studios during its its really big heyday. I mean, from terms of endearment in, in the late 70s all the way through uh, to E.T. Uh, these are incredibly huge films. So there might have been hope there that, wow, they're, they're, they're going to kind of erase what happened with Jaws 3, go back and, and actually make a good one. I was working at Universal Studios at the time, and in 1986, I remember walking on the back lot and seeing them building the gigantic tank that they would be shooting the ending in, and that was my first uh uh-oh moment. I was like, this was not a tank to shoot underwater scenes. This was to shoot surface scenes, and there was a gigantic, it looked like a big drive-in movie screen was in the background, and they were going to be painting that, airbrushing that to make it look like sky. So that was my first uh uh-oh moment. And I remembered seeing the fiberglass shark heads. They were getting them ready to pack up to send to the Bahamas. And the person I was working with at Universal said, you know, that they're all going to the Bahamas. They're they're shipping them out for Jaws 4. 
So I got to see a behind the scenes peek and I have to admit, I was excited. It's like, wow, they're, they're making a new Jaws and, and it sounds like it just might be good. They, they may have learned their mistake from Jaws 3 and, and this is going to be good. So you do find out after the fact that there was absolutely zero in the way of a script in place. And they already started building these effects and they shipped the sharks to the Bahamas before a script was even done. You can play devil's advocate and you can say, that still doesn't mean anything. The, the script could just be taking its time. It was that good. So the effects got done before the script and they sent the effects out. And the effects sat there for a while till a crew was gathered up and the script was done. They were calling Lorraine Gary out of retirement. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think she really worked in anything major since Spielberg's 1941, which was, you know, in, in the late 70s, early 80s. So she had been out of commission for a while. So the fact that they're bringing Mrs. Brody back, well, that's got to be something, right? I mean, that has to mean something. <laughs> So let's take a look at Mrs. Brody and why it was decided she was going to be the action hero of this film and, and not Roy Scheider. I mean, the first answer is really simple. Roy Scheider said, no damn way, I'm, I'm not coming back. He went out of his way to avoid being associated with Jaws 3. He did Blue Thunder just to make sure he could say, I'm busy, because he knew that Jaws 3 was in production and he wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't want anything to do with Jaws 2. That's pretty well known by this point. However, because of a contract situation and a legal situation, it was made worth his while. They paid him a lot of money and they told him basically, you, you really owe us, you know, two movies here. We'll mash them into one if you do Jaws 2. In Jaws 2, there was a big behind the scenes scuffle between Sid Sheinberg, the head of Universal Studios, who was also the husband of Lorraine Gary, and Zanuck and Brown, particularly Richard Zanuck. And that was uh, director John Hancock and Richard Zanuck had no plans of bringing Mrs. Brody out onto the water at the end of Jaws 2. Uh, it was originally written in the Howard Sackler, Dorothy Tristan script that Mrs. Brody would be out on the ocean with her husband helping to save her son. Sid Sheinberg wanted that. He said, you know, Lorraine is going out and it's going to be a big action thing and, and Lorraine will be out on the water. Zanuck said no. In fact, I believe he said over my dead body. And an internal power struggle started, which some argue was the final nail in the coffin for the original director of Jaws 2, John Hancock, who was then released from the film. So this whole Mrs. Brody out on the ocean thing kind of rolled over into Jaws the Revenge, where Scheinberg is finally going to get his way and his wife is going to be the big hero of this movie. Before we get into why the script is the definitive proof that this movie is cinema, they also tried for Richard Dreyfus, And there is a script out there, I believe I saw one of the drafts, where Richard Dreyfus appears as a phone call. He is talking to Mike Brody uh, while Mike is in the Bahamas, and I think Richard's character, Hooper, was on the Aurora. They, they keep sticking this guy on the Aurora. He's, he's been on the Aurora since 1978. The Aurora was uh, a floating research vessel, as Richard Dreyfus called it in the original Jaws. And in Jaws 2, he was out on the Aurora, which is why he wasn't in Jaws 2, when in real life, Richard Dreyfus was shooting Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Spielberg. Dreyfus knew better. 
and there was no way he was coming back for it. And and it's kind of interesting you, the the thought process behind it that they they actually thought they they might get Scheider and they they might get Dreyfus to reprise Brody and Hooper. This is why Sean Brody dies at the opening of the film. That was supposed to be Chief Brody getting his arm bit off. And so we went through all of this with Jaws and Jaws 2 to have this shark wait for Brody in the Amity Harbor and then bite his arm off and kill him. So the original killing in the opening of Jaws the Revenge was supposed to be Roy Scheider's Chief Brody. Think about this. They weren't going through all this trouble to bring back Scheider and Dreyfus for a quality film. Instead, this was a cynical move to dupe the public into thinking this was back to first Jaws territory. These were quick, one-day, lazy cameos to pop these guys in, lure people to the box office, and make an even better payday. Fortunately, both men smelled a stinker and kept away. I can't imagine there was even a script to show them. Their reps were likely called, offered money for the project, sight unseen, and hoped at least one of them took a cameo. It's not as bad as you say. It's not the worst movie ever made. So let me ask you a question. You are the head of Universal Studios. You're the person that gets to write the check. You put the thumbs up or give what they call the green light anywhere from 25 million up to make a movie. Now that's a considerable chunk of change. Despite the fact that these studios, their their movies make a lot of money, they also spend a lot of money and a lot of money hemorrhages out of the studio system, which is why it is so important a film makes the amount of cash that it does in opening weekend. So you are the head of Universal Studios and they come to you and they pitch you this idea for Jaws 4. Here's the windup, and here's the pitch. We get Lorraine Gary to return to the Jaws series as a widowed Mrs. Brody. She loses her son on Christmas Eve to another great white shark. The shark is psychic, and it is hunting down the Brody family for revenge. A grief-stricken Mrs. Brody flies to the Bahamas to be with her surviving older son, Michael. The shark follows her for vengeance, and we'll get into the travel speed of the shark from New England down to the Bahamas. She meets and falls in love with Michael Caine, who could be a drug runner. We have no idea, but he's got the hots for Mrs. Brody. The shark attacks Mike, who is now a diver and a marine biologist, who along with a Jamaican buddy played by Mario Van Peebles with an absolutely annoying Bahamian accent, plays his sidekick marine biologist buddy. The shark attacks Mrs. Brody's granddaughter, who narrowly escapes. Mrs. Brody steals her son's boat to confront the shark. Mrs. Brody and the shark square off at sea, and the film climaxes with Mrs. Brody steering the boat on a collision course for the rampaging shark. She impales it with a bowsprit through the head, which, depending on which version you watch, either spears the shark through the head and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, or it inexplicably explodes. That is the plot for Jaws 4, Jaws the Revenge. Would you write a check and make that movie? And here's my point. There was no pitch. No one seriously pitched that to anyone with a straight face and sat there and went, huh? huh? What do you think? Huh? Pretty good, right? This'll be a hit. No. Jaws the Revenge was an inside job, folks. This was made because there was still some money to spend. And the people that made this realized, hey... We can still squeeze some money out of this franchise, but the fact is we can use this movie as an excuse 
for a really long vacation in the Bahamas, take a paycheck, and make some money. That's it. There was no intention with this movie to actually make anything good or even serious. I mean, come on. How do you seriously, as a director, look at this and go, yeah, yeah, I I can make a good movie out of this. A psychic shark. A shark that has picked a family for revenge against what? I, I, I don't even understand the title, Jaws the Revenge. It was originally called Jaws the Return. But even grammatically, it's wrong. It should be Jaws colon the return or Jaws colon the revenge. And I know you're sitting there going, oh my God, this guy is nitpicking. I'm trying to point out to you, no one gave a shit. They made this just to line their pockets. If it ended up making some money, great. But if it didn't, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, who were the producers of the original Jaws and Jaws 2, were approached to do a Jaws 3. And one of the ideas was to make a spoof. It was called Jaws 3 People Zero. And I believe Maddie Simmons from the Vacation movies, uh, he the original Vacation film, I believe he wrote the draft. And Joe Dante of Piranha fame was going to direct it. Now... Zanuck and Brown were approached to do this, and I I guess they read the script. You can find the script online. I I actually have a link to it on my cinema blog for the Jaws 3D posts. And Brown uh, said back to the press, he said, you know, we passed on that. We're we're not going to make a spoof of the Jaws movies. And he used this. He said, it would be kind of like fouling our own nest. So in other words, we're not going to go and make these what we feel are two great films of quality And turn around and take a big steaming heap all over the legacy of these films. And smartly, they passed. Zanuck and Brown walked away. Where was a producer on this to go, we can't make some stupid movie about a psychic shark and revenge. And no one cared, again, if this movie made money. And even more so, no one cared if it was any good and it entertained anyone. That, folks, is the definition of cinema. Because they have plenty of money to make a great film. And they simply chose not to. I know, you're sitting there still saying, it's not that bad. Folks, we need to demand better. You ever see those reality versus expectation memes on the internet and they use all kinds of examples of kind of like uh, what you expect and what you get? Well, it's kind of like a fast food commercial. You know on those commercials how the burgers just look fantastic. I mean, you you look at it and the buns are fluffy. The lettuce is in place. The cheese is in place. The burgers look sumptuous. It, It looks like a work of art. Well, then you go to your fast food restaurant of choice and often it doesn't look anything like that. It's usually crushed up, flattened, stuff oozing out between the buns. And you go, that's nothing like the commercial. Jaws the Revenge is kind of like that. There is the reality versus the expectation. We need to expect better. The premise of Jaws the Revenge is bad. The script is bad. The acting is bad. The directing, the special or not so special effects. The shark again roars at the end. There are such errors in continuity and visual mistakes It's just obvious. They just didn't care. A lot of these mistakes could have been taken care of with a cropping or a snip in the edit room. Roger Ebert said this about Jaws the Revenge in his review. 
Jaws the Revenge is not simply a bad movie, but also a stupid and incompetent one. It's a ripoff. Amen, man. They brought Mario Van Peebles in to play this Jamaican comic relief kind of guy. He's kind of the Jamaican Hooper to Mike Brody, who obviously is standing in for the chief. At the end of the original theatrical release, his character, Jake, dies. The shark jumps out of the water. He falls into the shark's mouth, and that's just a scene all in itself. And the shark kills him. The last we see him, the shark is chewing on him as it takes him below the surface, and, and that's the last we see of good old Jake. However, apparently Jake was one of the only characters in this movie to resonate with the audience. And when the film was released overseas... They shot a new ending where Jake lived. How he did this, I don't know. But you can just hear the director and and the executives talking going, who gives a shit? Just make him come back to life again. It doesn't matter. The audience likes him. If it's going to bring in a few more bucks, then make him live. Depending on the version, I think on some DVDs you can get both versions. If not, they exist on YouTube. The one where the shark is speared through the head and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, is the one where Jake dies. The other, where they spear it through the head, and for some reason the shark explodes, that's the one where Jake lives. In addition to the house it built is terrific quote from Michael Caine, he also did say this in his memoir. Jaws the Revenge will go down in my memory as the time when I won an Oscar, paid for a house, and had a great holiday. Not bad for a flop movie. If you watch the ending credits to Jaws the Revenge, and and I recommend you do just for this one single credit, they give credit to a scientist who is billed as a scientific consultant from the California Academy of Sciences for his help in the making of this movie. So a scientist signed off on a shark that not only can be psychic and be cognizant enough to want revenge on a family. But in addition, the shark can stand on its tail. This three-ton shark can leap out of the water, stand on its tail, and hover in the air. The shark does this. That's the actual roar. Sharks don't have vocal cords, folks. The shark moves backwards. It goes in reverse. It also did that in Jaws 3. But sharks cannot go in reverse. They also have this shark swimming down to a crawl. Sharks, great white sharks specifically, cannot stop swimming or they will drown. But no matter in this, it doesn't matter. I don't know why they wasted the money on this guy. I think it's also pretty safe to say that sharks are probably lacking in extrasensory powers to track down individual human beings like some homicidal bio GPS assassin. Roger Ebert, went on to say about Jaws the Revenge, and and here's another great piece from his review on this. What I can't believe is that the director, Joseph Sargent, would film his final climactic scene so incompetently that there is not even an establishing shot. So we have to figure out what happened on the basis of empirical evidence. There is one great review of this film, and it comes from Jabutu's Bad Movie Dimension, where they just posted a still of the shark's death, the one where it, it explodes at the end. And that's that's the whole review. You just look at this photo. You can see it on my cinema blog site. That's how I open my blog on this. Just look at that. 
Those were the special effects. That tells you every damn thing you need to know. And you know what? For those of you still holding out saying, this movie is not that bad, I want you to go right to my cinema website right now and take a look at that opening still that I provided. After the shark sinks Michael Caine's plane, he swims, I'm telling you, a good 200 yards and climbs up onto the boat with Mrs. Brody and his clothes are bone dry. Now you could say, well, you know, they made a mistake. All right, I'll give you that. But the thing is, on a big budget movie like this, you have a continuity editor. You have camera people that would go, hey, wait a minute. Michael just swam from the plane over to the boat. Shouldn't this guy be wet? And the answer was... The famous line on a movie set is, moving on, that means the director got what they wanted and they're not wasting any more time on that shot or scene. Moving on. I'm telling you, Michael crawled out of the water, up onto that boat, bone dry. Somebody must have said, hey, shouldn't he be wet? And the reply was, moving on. Mrs. Brody flashbacks to events she was never witness to. So at the end of Jaws the Revenge, I guess to build some kind of tension and to cover the really bad performance of the very lousy mechanical shark, they not only cut to scenes of Mrs. Brody bearing down and steering the boat on the shark to kill it and having this really obsessed look that she wants to finish this thing off, but they also cut, and it's a groaner, they cut to Roy Scheider in the climax of Jaws, uh, on the crow's nest, shooting at the shark with a rifle. And you know it, they end it with, smile, you son of a bitch. And with that, they cut to the bow sprit hitting the shark. And depending on which version you watch, it either impales the shark or the shark inexplicably explodes. She also witnesses her son. She flashbacks to her son getting his arm bitten off in the opening of the film, Sean is killed. She wasn't there for that. She had no way to see these scenes. And I know you're saying, you're nitpicking. Who cares? They're just editing it. That's what cinema is supposed to do. Lull you in to just go with it. Just accept this garbage. We're going to poop down your throat and you're going to eat it. You're going to like this. Try to find an older copy of the film, especially in VHS or early DVD releases. If you watch the scene where the shark attacks the little yellow submersible sub. If you go on my cinema blog website, you can see photos of this. The mechanical shark attacks the sub and you can see the, the arm, the, the gigantic robotic arm that holds the shark up and makes it move. They didn't even crop it out, folks. And they could have. And in some scenes, they could have just painted it out. Instead, they just let it go. Somebody had to see this. Look, it's it's like the Game of Thrones uh, Starbucks cup thing. Don't tell me nobody saw that. It was either nobody cared or that was the greatest product placement ever. I mean, Game of Thrones had the largest audience ever. Starbucks got their money's worth in advertising. And that's cynical. On a movie set like on one of my films, as small as some of my films have been, you have so many eyes on what's happening on that set. You have a script supervisor, continuity editor. Sometimes they serve as both. You have assistant camera. You have people on set production assistants, grips, gaffers. They're all looking. Don't tell me that the Starbucks cup was missed. And most of all, let's just say it's missed on the set. It's still got to go through the editing process. And people look at it and they go, oh, wait a minute. You can't have that. And they could have painted that mechanical arm out. 
they could have cropped it out. And that's what I'm talking about. Not even spend the extra money to paint it out. Because digitally at that time, those things didn't happen, but you could still erase it. They, they just didn't care. All they had to do was just crop the image and they didn't do it. The script has zero character development. We have Mrs. Brody just fretting all the time and telling her son to stay out of the water and looking determined and angry and, and all of these things. There, there's nothing in there. Maybe Judith Barcy was cute as that little moppet of Mike's daughter, but there's nothing there. So they drop in the scene between Roy Scheider and Little Sean from the first Jaws film, and they mimic that. Lorraine Gary walks in and sees Mike, Lance Guest, sitting at a table with his daughter, and she is mimicking him because he's had a very bad day, just like the first film. And you could say, oh, that's cute. Oh, no, it's a tribute to the first film. There is nothing about tribute to Jaws with Jaws the Revenge. Still saying this isn't terrible? Well, all right, uh, the shark managed to swim over 3,000 miles in less than two days from New England to the Bahamas with zero explanation. It also knew Mrs. Brody would be going to the Bahamas. But wait, I'm going to add something else. In the opening of the film, Sean Brody, as we have said, is killed. The shark jumped out of the water and got him. Before that, Sean comes into the police station where an inexplicably not-aged Miss Polly, and played by a different actress, is telling him that there's a log pileup or a wood pileup in the harbor. You have to presume that the shark pushed that wood into the harbor knowing that Sean Brody would have to come out to move it. You would then have to believe that the shark is not only psychic, but incredibly intelligent. Still not convinced? Okay. One of the signs of a weak movie, it's a cheap trope. It was all a dream moment where somebody sits up and grabs their chest and goes, <gasps> it was all a dream, right? It was relief. You see this all the time in horror films. I'm willing to bet most of you listening right now, very few of you have ever had a nightmare so bad that you've sat up and done that. You wake up, you jump in your sleep maybe, and your eyes pop open. But very few of us have sat straight up in bed with our hands to our chest, gasping like crazy. Well, if that has happened to you, good for you. But Jaws the Revenge not only offers one of these scenes, it gives you two. If we accept the idea that the shark is psychic and wants revenge against the Brody family, then the following script issues have to be examined. Is this a new shark? Is it the same shark from the first film? Or is it related? We're told the Chief Brody died of a heart attack from the fear of this shark. But again, is this the first shark? Did it miraculously come back to life after being blown to bits? Did it put itself back together? And just before you think, come on, that's ridiculous, Harrison. You Just so you know, they were going to make the shark in Jaws 3 be the same shark from Jaws 2 that got like 200,000 volts thrown through it and somehow miraculously survived and followed the Brody family to SeaWorld. That was actually an option on the table. And Joe Alves, I believe, is quoted in Fangoria Magazine in 83 saying, well, we, we chose not to do that because we would have been laughed off the screen. Decades ago, Michael Medved dubbed Ed Wood the worst director ever. I offer in this podcast that Ed Wood deserves a heartfelt apology, not just by Michael Medved, but everybody who cites Plan 9 from Outer Space as the worst movie ever made. The fact is, they blew almost $30 million 
on Jaws the Revenge. They released this thing with a straight face and marketing campaign. Did anyone, again, sitting in the screening room after this was completed, think they had a winner? I'm telling you, they probably didn't even screen it. I can't even imagine the celebrities that were involved with this movie going, yeah, let's go to the screening. There was no big premiere that I knew of. And don't you think that there should have been, that there should have been like Jaws is back and a big premiere about this? This was a dirty secret and they knew it. Did they look at this film and think they had a winner? Did did the people involved look at each other and, and nodded with satisfaction and say, this is good? I mean, somebody had to look at it all the way through. So that leads me to really the only one good thing about Jaws the Revenge. And are you ready? It's the musical score. It's the soundtrack. The late Michael Small composed the soundtrack and and the opening theme is kind of a really interesting almost like militaristic type of rendition of of the original jaws theme and and overall it's it's got a really good score and uh, a friend of his uh, AK Benjamin said this about Michael Small and his score he said it's sad that the great Michael Small was delegated utter crap like jaws the revenge in the late 80s And even worse, that he never found his way back to the material that he deserved. And that's a shame. Michael Small is no longer with us, but Jaws the Revenge is. Jaws the Revenge is also a dishonest movie. Again, the studio knew they had a brand name of Jaws to get people into the theaters. They knew that by calling it Jaws, you're coming. The law of percentages, I said this in the in the first podcast, said that a certain percentage of Jaws fans are going to return no matter what. It's kind of like Star Wars. No matter how much they hate Last Jedi, people are going to show up for the rise of Skywalker. They know that. They know that that brand name is going to bring people in. They know that there is a base audience out there and often they can cover their nut just on that base of fans. People were duped into thinking that this had some kind of a return to quality of the first Jaws by using Lorraine Gary as Mrs. Brody. And they never even bothered to release Michael Small's soundtrack. I think the only way you can find it now is on YouTube. You can find it online. I love this quote by Mike Bracken from CultureDose.com. He said this about Jaws the Revenge. He said, I'm not sure who greenlighted this thing, but I'll bet they're not working in the film industry anymore. Simply put, the script is awful. My seven-year-old daughter makes up better stories than this when she's trying to avoid getting in trouble. They did a hit-and-run release on this thing in late July, early August, and no previews for the critics. And and the hit-and-run, you're going to understand what that is, too. This is another cynical ploy. The hit-and-run is when you know you have a bad film and you put it out when there's nothing else out there. So usually what they call the end of summer, the dog days of summer... They released Jaws the Revenge and also Jaws 3D. They threw those out at the end of summer. They know they have about two weeks to make their money. And by the time bad word of mouth gets around, the movie has made its profit. It's broken even and they pull it from release. Lorraine Gary, Michael Caine and everyone involved knew they were making a turkey. Down to the media press kit, they insisted this was going to be good. It was shot, slapped together and tossed out to the public as damaged goods. And for anybody saying that Jaws the Revenge is good, I say this. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review, and if you want to read my cinema blog, 
You'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison. If you like this podcast and if you're an aspiring filmmaker making your way through the independent film minefield, I offer one-on-one coaching sessions by phone or Skype. Email me at this site or classof85llc at gmail.com for information and pricing. I offer input on your completed or in-development film or screenplay and offer insight into all aspects of pre-production, production, and post, and eventual distribution. Hope to hear from you.